and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Sean Hathiramani, CEO of Flockjay. The future of education and skilling is becoming very interesting. In tech, we hear a lot about boot camps, and the idea of the income share agreement is becoming a more popular way to align incentives. But we have yet to see these concepts married together for non-technical domains. Enter Flockjay a 12-week immersive online sales academy that only charges students if they secure a $50,000 plus job upon completion of the program. I got a chance to learn about their current cohort and the backgrounds of the students are incredibly inspirational. The class is 80% Black, Latinx, people of color and women, and spans ages from 22 to 61. It has 30% first-generation Americans, folks who grew up in foster care, had to drop out of college, were homeless, military vets, and even some former NFL draftees for the Tampa Bay Bucks. The coolest part about Flock J is it works for all demographics, all ages, and backgrounds. All you need is grit. This one was fun. Welcome, Sean, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ramin. Yeah, so Sean, I'm really excited to have you on the show today and dive you know, pretty deeply into Flock J and your perspective on the future of you know, education and reskilling. But before we jump to that, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding Flockjay. Sure. Um, you know, it's an interesting story. My parents came to this country in the 80s. And as first-generation immigrant family, um, we grew up in a small, sleepy suburb in New Jersey and didn't really have much in terms of access to uh, the educational system. So a lot of it was trial and error. My childhood was pretty complicated. But one thing I was pretty lucky for was the fact that my parents actually did invest in education. So um, there was a day in elementary school in which we noticed sort of our bus was going one way and another bus was going another way in our street. And my parents literally crossed the street and asked our neighbors and said, hey, what's what's going on? And that's sort of how we discovered private school and financial aid and scholarships and sort of the different institutional strata in education. And that changed my life. Um, that allowed me to... Um, get access to different kinds of opportunity and people and ultimately um, graduate school. Um, I think it was when I graduated college, I still had this sinking feeling that I had some knowledge, but just not a lot of skills that were widely applicable to some of the things I wanted to do. Um, So in addition to starting my first job out of school, I started teaching um, financial literacy in and around inner city Chicago, where I was at the time, and later in New York, where I started a small financial literacy nonprofit. And the thinking there was that there were just so many skills that weren't being taught, um, both in sort of higher ed and in sort of the longer educational journey that I wish I had growing up, that I wish my parents had growing up, um, that I wanted to start uh, finding ways um, to present uh, to people from underrepresented communities. And so that sort of dedication and passion to teaching has been with me for a long time and really accelerated when I came out to San Francisco and saw a lot of the same themes manifest themselves in this industry and technology where companies are growing incredibly fast, have incredible runway, and due to a lot of those constraints, don't necessarily have the bandwidth or the internal capacity to invest in uh, bringing on people where they can both own the training and the diverse pipeline uh, piece of sourcing uh, amazing high potential uh, candidates who may just be missing a few skills. Um, So that's sort of where uh, Flockje came to be. I spent a full year talking to startups and asking them, what are your biggest pain points in hiring? What's sort of limiting you from growth? 
And one of the most interesting and surprising insights from those conversations is we kept coming back to companies struggling to hire, um, not just in sort of the core engineering functions, which a lot of people talk about, but in roles like sales, like the, the enveloping set of roles that both support and elevate the core functions of tech companies. And sales is an immediately impactful, revenue-driving, opportunity-creating profession that's really hard, as it turns out, to predict uh, success in based on just your traditional heuristics that you see in a resume. There's actually like no correlation to where you went to school or what you studied to, to how well you do in sales. And that's where the light bulb went off, is, is what if we could come up with a solution that both helps companies predictably hire top sales talent and grow faster, that also makes tech more accessible to people from underrepresented communities. And that's how Blockchain was born. Yeah, it's interesting because there's there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I want to kind of jump into FlockJ, you know, super specifically. But even before doing that, I like the way you framed kind of this idea of um, access and also yeah. a bit of, you know, fortuity, right? I mean, the way you framed kind of your story of you know, your parents crossing the street completely changed your life. And I, I think what's, you know, what, what I'd love to get your perspective on is, you know, what's happening on uh, what's happening in education today and why you know, from my perspective, from kind of the outside in, <clears throat> I think that problem is actually getting even worse. So, you know, there's a there's a very famous graph. It shows consumer prices, you know, over the last 20 or so years with inflation as the baseline. And over the last 20 years, you know, aggregate inflation has been, you know, about 55 percent. And a lot of things have decreased from a from a cost perspective. But, you know, there's the three horsemen of the American economy that have continued to outpace inflation and it's construction, healthcare, and education. And, and of those three, education has risen, you know, by far the most. It's something like something to the tune of 4x the pace of inflation. So talk a little bit more about, you know, what you, you know, what you've seen in the education landscape, you know, both obviously from your experience as well as teaching inner city schools and kind of this idea of, you know, access for, for underrepresented minorities. Yeah. Uh, so it's no secret that there are some real structural challenges in and around our higher education system. 1.5 trillion in student debt is the figure that gets batted around a lot. I think interestingly in that number, um, it's actually the 2012 cohort of students, of graduates from colleges that have uh, probably the worst metrics in terms of outstanding debt and also just um, a duration on that debt. And so it's not just sort of like a, a pre-crisis, post-crisis sort of thing. It's a persistent problem. And, you know, I will say it's, it's now you know, in vogue and fashionable to sort of say higher ed is broken. Um, and it's important to think about, you know, not just government policy and resources in higher ed, but also just the system level sort of set of constraints we're dealing with. To focus on education, the way I think about it, um, you know, despite it being sort of a system levels problem, there's sort of three things that stand out to me. Um, the first is actually financial. Um, something that's not, you know, often talked about is the fact that um, for most um, private sort of foundational schools, 5% um, of endowments in any given year can be spent. And that's an IRS rule that goes back to the 80s. And it's basically um, in place to keep these institutions tax exempt. And 5% made a lot of sense when your compound rate of return in the aggregate market was you know, high single digits, low double digits, um, maybe in the past uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years over time. And we've certainly been in a 10, you know, nine, 10 year cycle where that may have been the case, but that's much harder now. So, you know, we afford a lot of attention to call it the top 
50 schools in terms of colleges in this country uh, with massive endowments. But for the majority of schools, you know, the top 200, the community college system, the state college system, there are a lot more constraints in terms of what they can and can't even spend on. So even if they were completely mission aligned and completely mobile and completely sort of agile in terms of addressing some of these gaps in skills training, the complexity of that is augmented by that structure uh, and all the decisions that are competing for that attention, whether it's you know fair, play, fair pay for employees that work in these schools, athletic programs, financial aid for existing students, new coursework, um, it's a lot. Um, so right out the gate, um, you have sort of like a really tough um, system where incentives are not aligned to make dramatic change. And so then you sort of start going downstream from there where curriculum in a lot of higher ed schools just hasn't adjusted to reflect employer needs and job market realities. I know we love to think about higher ed in pretty romantic terms in terms of um, a broader liberal arts education and really being exposed to different sort of ways of critical thinking. And I'm a huge beneficiary and advocate for that. Um, but the data isn't just the job market reality is it's more than 90% of students go to college so that they can get a good first job um, right, right after. And so we have to own that reality. And, you know, I spoke to 250 top colleges and universities and asked them one question. It was, do you have any programming that teaches anything related to Salesforce? And zero, <laughs> zero of the schools had, had anything. And, and, you know, something like Salesforce is so pervasive, um, not just in technology, but just in any modern company looking to accelerate its growth, um, its table stakes. Uh, you know, that sort of thing is mind blowing uh, to me. And, and that comes from the fact that lower level course curriculum hasn't changed you know, most departments offer the same courses they offered 20 to 30 years ago, and upper-level courses are dictated by faculty research priorities, which are often divorced from those like labor market demands. And that feeds into the tenure system and just like the ability to adapt and change quickly to how fast uh, the world and technology is changing. So those are sort of two big ones. And the third I'd add in terms of the education system is if we're learning from professors where the only real career path is to take their jobs in terms of like the PhD system, uh, it's sort of like this slow motion Ponzi scheme. Um, and so those are just some of many systems underlying the issues at, at play. Um, but that's all to say that there are just, you know, universities and colleges are fighting with one, if not two hands behind their back. And there's a desperate need um, for programs to come in that can move fast, that can offer this training, and that can produce real outcomes. Yeah, it's interesting. The way you described it, right, you see kind of a lot of the system level outputs, which is, you know, things like crippling student debt. Um, you know, part, of, part of the challenge is you have kind of an enabling financing source, right, in the U.S. government that, you know, has kind of infinite loans to give, which is, you know, not something you see in, in obviously in different markets or so. And so you, you get a value prop of higher ed that's, you know, really out of balance, Um Talk about, you know, you alluded to it a little bit and we have kind of talked around it, but, you know, talk a little bit about, um, you know, Flockchain, the solution in part, you know, give us a brief of what it is and then, you know, we can dive into a bunch of the kind of interesting nuances that you guys are solving for. Yes, we're focused on providing technical and soft skills that employers need, but which colleges and universities don't teach, or frankly, it's just hard to find that education anywhere. And so Flockchain is zero dollars up front. It's an online academy 
that gives diverse job seekers the tools and training they need uh, to break into fast-growing industries like tech without code. As an industry in technology, we spend most of our efforts bringing people into um, tech by promoting engineering roles, which is amazing, and I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, but what we seek to do um, is in less than 12 weeks, give students extremely personal attention, mentorship, and support, uh, teach them sort of like the, the fundamentals of, of modern selling and, and help them master an incredibly competent uh, life skill that they can take into basically any role and marry that with um, a technical fluency, uh, the tech software stack that enables you to do those things um, at a really high level and ultimately work with hiring partners who are mission aligned with what we're doing and actually place those students. And we seek to do all of that uh, within 12 weeks. It's all online, it's all interactive, and we have some of the best instructors and sales experts in the world from places like Facebook and Google and Intercom and Box um, coming in to teach our students. So talk, talk a little bit more about kind of this idea to focus on sales, right? I think, you know, one of the things in the tech industry we hear a lot, and frankly, you know, even more so, I think, in the non-tech industry, I see this a lot in my work at McKinsey, is kind of this idea that, you know, the future is technology, the future is going to be technology driven. And so digital and analytics literacy is key. And, you know, I think that statement is wholeheartedly true. I just don't think it's complete. You know, I, I think if you look at any strong business, you know, in the in the traditional tech industry or not, you know, every, everything is becoming a technology business. But if you look at the really strong companies, they're the ones that surround, you know, kind of technical talent, engineering and product talent with a really robust business engine, right? Sales, marketing, customer success, yep. HR. You know, yep. how did you guys think about it? And and I asked that question also from the perspective of there's lots and lots of coding boot camps out there, right? The, the income share yep. piece is totally a an innovation to the model, but it's still, you know, it's still a focus on, on technology. So how did you guys think about kind of going the non-technical route? Yeah, uh, you touched on a lot of it, but the biggest piece in and around there is I think roles outside and around engineering um, are either um, they either get a bad rap or they themselves are underrepresented in terms of how critical they are to helping companies succeed. Um, there's the zero to one phase in terms of actually finding that product market fit for any business. And that one to many phase, frankly, is make it or break it based on functions like sales. Um, if you're good at sales, you're not just moving product to a client. You're a thought leader and you're a trusted advisor and you're able to marry um, taking really complicated concepts, uh, simplifying them in a clear and concise way and marrying that with like a, a digital and technical fluency to do that um, to a whole range of different audiences and backgrounds. And that's an incredibly hard skill. Um, and to see people pick it up uh, on the job is to witness just trial by fire based on how it's done in companies today. You know, most companies turn over close to a third of their sales force, which to me is just mind blowing. Um, and part of it is because there's this idea that, you know, all these other roles are secondary to product. And so they're sort of like put them in the deep end, figure it out. Hopefully they figure out best practices and we can afford to keep people, you know, putting people in the machine until um, until we get sort of good leaders. And, and that creates a lot of systemic bias. And it also perpetuates um, a very specific way of approaching um, sales that we're, you know, we're trying to think more deeply about. And so the question we asked ourselves is, what if 
you can actually provide companies with top tier talent that, you know, 10%, you know, part of the curve, uh, which is earning four to five times their OTE, their, their, their full salary in terms of the money they're bringing in. It's a no brainer investment for companies instead of sort of, you know, hiring and firing and continuing that vicious cycle to invest in actually providing for um, out of the box, amazing leaders who are able to accelerate their business directly in terms of real dollars. And so that's sort of how we came to sales. And then from a purely you know, practical perspective, you know, I'll share an interesting anecdote with you in terms of coding boot camps. There are some really inspirational stories of, of, of people who, who go through them and learn to code and, and their lives change. And we've heard, you know, a lot of them. Um, what we don't hear are a lot of the stories in which you make a 30 week investment in your life and you're really fired up and you're doing great. But it's it's hard to, to make up for years of, of, of lost time and knowledge um, for something in coding and get that job and make it happen. So we've had applicants who've gone through these boot camps, who've gone the whole journey um, from incredible, um, amazing, and inspirational backgrounds, only to meet the end of the road to be like, hey, I don't know if I want to spend you know, all my time just heads down on my computer um, uh, writing code. And B, it's, it's much different than this sort of romantic notion I was sold. I crave, um, you know, building human relationships and marrying my interest in technology with actually solving other people's problems. And so we're having people actually come to us after that and say, hey, this is a, you know, a good experience, but a little bit eye-opening to go into sales is that like first step into technology. And that opens up so many doors in terms of other roles you can pursue in and around uh, the company you're working at and in and around the industry uh, just because of how um, technical and sort of product-oriented sales is becoming uh, to be really good at it. So hopefully that gives you some context for, um, for why sales. Um, I think First Round put out a, a pretty in-depth look at um, the hardest roles to fill. And not surprisingly, engineering was one of them, but sales was right up there with engineering, top two hardest roles. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I think there's there's a really huge kind of income spread between this idea of access, you know, figuring out what, uh, you know, what kind of domain you want to spend your time in, basic sales training, and then ultimate sales compensation packages, right? So if you look at kind of the full and life cycle, yep. there's, there's a pretty big spread to capture there. And I think one of the, one of the kind of oft, um, oft critiques of coding boot camps is this idea of, you know, paying kind of a material amount of money up front, right? So not only totally. is it a huge cost, right? But for underserved populations, especially some of the folks you guys are working with, it's actually just quite frankly, not feasible, right? Uh, so yep. you guys are doing something interesting, right? You're, you're using income share agreements. There's obviously been you know, ISAs are kind of in vogue these days. Uh, there's a lot more kind of fanfare about them. There's a lot more criticisms about them. Uh, but the good thing is, is the conversation is, is kind of being started. Talk a little bit more about your thought process on kind of how you manage a business that uses an ISA, right? Because it's, it's a little bit more complex than, you know, just getting a 20K fee up front. And, yep. and then specifically, you know, how you how you use that instrument to really kind of focus on and help underserved populations. Yeah, it's a it's a really um, exciting. And as you mentioned, in vogue conversation around how do you align incentives so that, uh, you know, we only get rewarded if there is a real outcome. And I think the heart of an ISA captures that. 
And the way we structure our ISA um, is very deliberate and also is a function of the profession of sales. Something you alluded to is that, um, you know, sales and the sales profession really allows you to create immense financial opportunity for yourself. It's one of the most meritocratic roles in a company because uh, you're measured on a pretty clear heuristic. Like, are you meeting your quota? Are you bringing in revenue for the company? And you can accelerate your earnings potential, um, you know, between your first day on the job and you know, 18 months out in a pretty dramatic way. Um, so generally speaking, we are two to four Xing incomes for folks in their first year out of Flock J. But what we don't talk as much about is that from there, the income's actually 2x uh, and 4x just based on how the slope of sales compensation works, which is why we deliberately chose uh, to keep our ISA just to the first year, just to that entry level where the risk is the lowest. Uh, we have a 10% um, a first year income constraint so that uh, we are not um, you know, put in that same sort of bucket of, uh, of longer duration, sort of almost servitude-like contracts that have sparked some of the criticism in this space. So we wanted to be really intentional about that because we want the upside left to the folks we are serving, which are the underserved, underrepresented, disadvantaged, and non-traditional backgrounds um, of people who find us and who want to break into tech. Over time, I will add where our model sort of stands out and is different from some of the other boot camps out there is we have an ability to work directly with employers to help them place top talent. And, uh, you know, companies are already using outside agencies and recruiters and paying them placement fees uh, to help them with that. And the quality of that pipeline is harder to distinguish than sourcing it yourself. And I think where we come in is we actually do all the pre-vetting, pre-training uh, ahead of time. I mean, our folks are learning Salesforce and Outreach and Gong.io and other parts of the tech stack along with those best practices so that, um, you know, our graduates are ramping three times faster than their peers would be even out of those agencies. So there's a huge value proposition in and around sales for companies to retain us, um, where for boot camps and coding, I feel like a lot of companies have been burned by... Um, you know, whether and how to hire for those skills and those competencies uh, and whether people come out with those full um, sort of stack of certifications that we look to, to emphasize in our program. So there are two pieces of that muscle. One is like really aligning both uh, monetarily and philosophically with uh, students and making sure they capture their upside uh, while also reducing the friction for them to join our program because we invest in our students up front, we train and coach them for free, and we devote our heart and soul into making that a, a really premium experience that others don't do. Uh, and then also working with companies to make sure they're getting um, top-tier talent and helping them you know, meet that need. Yeah, I think the, the ecosystem part, and you started alluding to it a little bit, and I want to get into it a little bit more deeply too, but the ecosystem part is, is really, really interesting because I think there's a bunch of <clears throat> derivative products, et cetera, at scale for for all yep. different sorts of folks in the ecosystem that provide continual value. But but before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit more kind of on this, uh, on the candidate experience side and kind of how you work, you know, with candidates. One of the things, you know, I see pretty candidly in, in my work at McKinsey is this idea of reskilling and, you know, how companies today can think about not only getting the right set of folks in, but you know, also how can companies realign existing individuals into the right roles? And, and you see that at much larger organizations, but 
you know, totally. it, it leads to a lot of first principles thinking on, you know, what are the right roles of the future? And then, you know, when you break that down, what are the characteristics required for those roles? So I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you're, and again, this is kind of a, this is a nuance, I think, of a ISA-driven business is you're aligned 100% to student outcomes. So you're not quite thinking about, you know, program acceptance as let's just get everybody in. You're, you're also kind of thinking about, hey, who are folks that have kind of this innate potential that we can develop, you know, so it's best in class for them and obviously best in class for you. And so I'm curious what the characteristics are that you look, you know, for in candidates that you accept into the program and then, you know, what you try to develop in them. Because I, I imagine it's, you know, partly technical knowledge, like you were talking about kind of the Salesforce piece. Um, but then I, I imagine you're pushing a lot of soft skill development too. Yeah. And I think to like address that question i want to take like a bit of a step back and just talk a little bit about just the broader hiring ecosystem and just how that works because that's certainly a piece of it that i only came to appreciate as i started digging deeper um you know if you think about just the average company today versus 10 15 years ago um you know back 10 15 years ago most uh you know job postings weren't necessarily posted online uh, you have to sort of find out about them, you know, approach the company. There's a lot more friction. Now, I think it's like 85% of all job openings are posted online, which means for any given job opening, there's probably hundreds of applications that are coming in. And companies are using applicant tracking systems to filter on keywords to sort of try to cut through that noise. And so that process is just like a deeply imperfect one. It's much easier to come up with, you know, 10 different technical skill requirements, you know, Salesforce or, um, you know, whatever it might be, then it is 10 different ways of saying problem solving or critical thinking or curiosity. And so that creates an interesting sort of system where a lot of high potential, high caliber candidates are being skipped because they didn't filter into that college strata or that competency strata, or even more often uh, the case for entry level roles uh, you're seeing more and more entry-level roles require two years of experience. And so that requires sort of a rethinking of how you think about um, bringing people in top of the funnel and how you actually measure uh, and predict for success. And so I mentioned earlier in this conversation that we found, based on our data, very little correlation between what school you went to and even what you studied to your success in roles like sales. So in our application process, it's pretty simple. It's 10 minutes. Uh, we focus on things like how do we measure uh, skills like curiosity and coachability and prior success and work ethic? Um, how can we get candidates to interact with us and demonstrate um, you know, their interest by writing, um, by recording a one-minute YouTube video, uh, by trying to think about different ways where we can sort of more systematically ignore um, some of the traditional heuristics, we don't even ask for a resume. Um, we ask for a LinkedIn profile just because of how visible that is in terms of getting hired, um, but we don't even ask for a resume. So we really try to look for things like, hey, in college, did you work a second job? Or tell us a story about how you helped someone else uh, solve a problem and what went into that. And we have ways of measuring with data uh, and aligning those to our sort of skills matrix to, to help us get a sense for those tendencies, but we also allow room for people to surprise us. Um, and we keep it pretty broad and open. And basically anyone who comes in the door has a fair shot um, of joining our program. It's really interesting because I think what you're getting kind of 
what you're alluding to and kind of getting past is this idea of just, you know, initial kind of layers, uh, second order observations and heuristics, right? Proxies, basically. Yep. You, to, yep. you know, the actual underlying observation that you'd like to make. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked about the ecosystem piece. Um, I, I'm curious on how you kind of think about the flywheel effect in, in this type of business, because I think at scale, right, when you have you know, better success stories, you have eager employers ready to hire from your, uh, from your program. There's a lot of interesting kind of byproducts of that that get created at scale. And, and a lot of those, frankly, are, you know, things from the existing um, kind of education ecosystem, things like alumni networks. Um, but then there's obviously kind of new, you know, derivations and, and byproducts that you get to create as well. So how do you kind of think about that in terms of uh, the management of the ecosystem piece? And what are some of the most, you know, exciting things you're interested in kind of building as the organization grows at scale? I'll give you a little preview because, as you mentioned, there's just like a really exciting sort of you know, breadth of possibility here in terms of the model we're pioneering in terms of not just um, focusing on both sort of the applicant and the placement, but also how we approach pedagogy. So certainly, as you alluded to, our students are and will be our biggest champions and advocates. And literally day two into the program, uh, it's the most like thrilling thing to see students be like, hey, how do I pull my friends into the next cohort of Block J? Um, and so that's going to be really exciting, not only in terms of referral, but also just in terms of their competency. So unlike uh, perhaps other structures, we've set up Flock J in a way in which not only are we a school for students, but we're also going to be a school for teachers and trainers. And so folks who are graduating our program Folks in the ecosystem right now as junior sales representatives at tech companies, those are all our potential mentors, trainers, supporters, teachers, advocates uh, that we can draw on. Companies looking to have a bigger uh, and, and louder presence in and around the diversity and inclusion conversation are really eager to bring their high-level VPs of sales to us to share their journeys and their stories in and around sales and how they came to be. Sales is one of those amazing professions where no one person has the same story on how they got into sales. It's very rare that someone woke up and then at five years old was like, I want to be in tech sales. Uh, but you talk to VPs of sales and they love it. And the way they came into it was from theater or from the military or from community college or from you know, marketing and agency work. It's, it's amazing to share those stories and exhibit uh, models of success that look and feel like our students. So between those individuals who are already examples of success, um, our current and future students, and junior sales reps in and around the ecosystem who are more than willing to come back and teach and train and learn from uh, future leaders, there's a lot we can do, um, not to mention just the collaborative nature of sales where we are already seeing students teaching students uh, in the class and giving peer feedback and peer reviews. And we structure our classes so that uh, we have specific rep days where students are broken into pairs and we're able to jump into different breakout rooms, give real-time feedback, but also watch students learn uh, and light up uh, from each other as they see and repeat and see and repeat uh, different things they're working on uh, in class. So there's a lot of things in and around, not just sales, but you know, other verticals that uh, we might consider uh, that have similar sort of opportunities. And so let's let's talk about that core product kind of a little bit more because it, it's interesting, right? So it's it's all online, um, and traditionally, I think there's there's kind of two ways to think about this. So 
traditionally, when you look at online courses, they're big drop-off rates. You know, in-person has significantly better completion percentages. Um, but in some sense, that feels a little bit like a second-order observation, and it it doesn't feel proper to say, you know, the assessment of uh, a good course is whether it's online or in-person. It, it kind of sounds like a little bit more of it is dependent on surrounding an, uh, an online course or an in-person course with the appropriate infrastructure. So you are alluding to some of the things around kind of collaboration, real-time feedback. How are you seeing this, uh, you know, play out as you guys have been developing the product? Yeah. So, you know, online education has an interesting history. And I think there's a lot of sort of anchoring on what I'll call version one of it, which is sort of just like this passive experience of, Uh, massively organized online courses. And I think that's where you see a lot of the pushback in terms of dropout rates and uh, completion and results and outcome. And I think just like anything else, when you have platform changes, there are sort of stages um, in which that platform accelerates in terms of technological capability that allows for the core function, in this case, pedagogy, to keep up. And I'd say in version one, you didn't have necessarily the bandwidth, literally, um, or the actual tools uh, to create some of the core features of in-class teaching uh, online. And so rather than write it off based on those statistics, I think we're now at sort of V2 or even V3, uh, since we've gone through the first cycle of sort of dev and coding boot camps, we are able to sort of create a lot of those things uh, that are in a classroom, but online with pretty simple tools. Uh, and, and, you know, I can come back to this, but even things like Slack, um, seeing what you can do in and around community building, things like Zoom, things like uh, sales enablement software or certification software, you know, we were just working on building, you know, the certifications for our course every week. We sort of have our students pass a different set of criteria. And in the classroom, like the in-physical classroom experience, you're basically confined to pen, paper, multiple choice, short answer. What we can do with our certifications is as part of one of the answers, students can turn on their webcam, record uh, you know, a, a potential role play exercise on a discovery call, submit that in real time, watch our response to it, and get a grade. And that just opens up a huge amount of possibility that you can't really do um, in, li- you know, in, in class. So we're really excited about um, the potential for online courses and engagement. And we're looking broadly, not just in this space in this country, but also just ways in which online ed has progressed in other countries. I think uh, you know, in terms of peer-to-peer teaching uh, in English and other sort of courses, and these are billion-dollar businesses. So we're pretty optimistic in terms of the potential and pathway ahead uh, for us and for the space. And what's been the hardest part of, of building the company so far, right? I mean, there's, uh, I think, again, kind of there's, there's, there's different ways to think about this kind of, you know, one side of the story is, you know, the, the mission is fantastic, right? There's a real need. There's obviously a real pain point. And you know, the other kind of the cynical perspective would be to say, you know, there's, um, you know, these types of models, you know, won't work or, you know, kind of the, the offset of cynicism that you typically receive. Um, but what's the kind of what's that kind of middle point of saying, you know, this is something worth pursuing, right? There's obviously kind of uh, normal challenges to building any type of company. Well, what's been the hardest part of kind of building this type of company that you guys have faced so far? Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, the, 
all the hard work is yeah. ahead. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of hard work to do and, and, you know, we are definitely gearing up to, to do it, but I'd say the thing we're most focused on, you know, certainly there's a lot of interest in terms of folks wanting to be part of the program. Um, and so I think scaling us, scaling sort of our structures and then also, uh, finding, uh, you know, companies who are aligned on both hiring top talent in sales and believe in diverse and inclusive workplaces. I think that piece of it is really important. And I think uh, companies are standing out uh, as they commit to that. And, they're, and you know, to be clear, like, it, it has been really humbling and exciting to see the company interest, but to actually build those relationships in a longer, longer way, I think is, is, is part of a broader conversation to change the narrative around uh, diverse leadership in technology and in sales. If you just look around some of the tech conferences that are put on, uh, you know, you really need to to look hard to find diverse leaders that are represented adequately. And we want to help. We want to be a part of that conversation. And part of that is actually starting um, at, at the very sort of, uh, you know, source of the issue, which is how do you build companies inside out that respect diversity and inclusion in their DNA and hire um, both top talent and diverse talent, and in turn, uh, support that talent once hired. Uh, it's one thing to create these outcomes where, um, you know, we've built this machine and we place people at these great companies, but to make sure that once you land, you feel support. And, and we're working a lot on providing basically like over a year of mentorship and support and community uh, from our advisors, from our community, from our alumni, to make sure that transition uh, is really smooth. But that's probably the piece we're most focused on is how do we actually just change the narrative uh, at an industry level? Um, because I think the, the exciting piece of it is just like, you know, if you want to break into tech and you don't want to code, uh, we're a pretty amazing option for you to do that in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, where the quality of what we're doing um, is, is extremely high in Paramount and the, the friction to actually do it is incredibly low. Talk about the changing the narrative piece at the industry level a, a little bit more, right? I, I, because I, I think there's, you know, I, I think on the hiring partner side, there's there's always been this kind of adage of understanding that a for-profit education world works. And, and typically, frankly, in for-profit education outcomes, you know, haven't been aligned um, super well with students, right? And, and a lot of students that go through the kind of for-profit space end up a lot worse off, um, you know, than they, they actually yep. were before. So how do you you know, how do you kind of think about that tactically when, uh, when speaking with folks and, and what are sort of the, what's the sort of, um, you know, underlying piece there that you think is required to change the industry narrative? I think it just starts um, figuratively by just like moving the chains. It's just a, it's a game of inches where uh, this is all outcomes oriented and we need uh, incredible results at the end of our program. And we need uh, incredible companies who value not only hiring really well, but investing the time to make uh, new hires feel supported. And I think that is changing. I think you're seeing it. Uh, and I think it will accelerate. Clearly, the public discourse around tech uh, and, and diversity and inclusion is loud and growing. And I think the most exciting piece of this is what we're doing isn't just diversity and inclusion for its own sake. It actually is backed up by real data that diverse and inclusive workplaces lead to more productive and successful teams, organizations, and companies. Um, 
and so that's sort of how we're, we're thinking about it is we really want to start at sort of like the most granular level and get people in the door of companies and over time watch that snowball because the people we place are going to be hiring managers and they're going to build teams um, hopefully from us uh, and others uh, who share our mission. Uh, I don't think this is a, um, you know, an environment where uh, there can't be, uh, you know, different allies tackling this problem in different ways in different arenas. So, that's sort of how I think about changing the narrative. It, it just starts with a lot of hard work, a lot of really candid conversations, and honestly, also just a lot of investment by our company. Uh, we're investing a lot and taking a lot of chances on people uh, and training them and seeing some really incredible uh, and exciting results. Yeah, talk about, the, talk about that kind of alliances point a little bit, because I think, you know, one of the things if I kind of put my investor hat on, you know, I hear a lot, you know, when, when I kind of talk to folks that are uh, that are focused on education investments ed tech kind of investments um you know the reaction i often hear for kind of business models you know like a flock j uh are you know it's it's not going to be a winner take all and you know there'll be tons of competitors that come up and you know form you know ha- use isas as an instrument so it becomes a fragmented space and it's it's tough to compete in. and i i had austin allred of you know lambda school on the podcast a couple episodes ago and it was interesting yep. in kind of talking with him too. My, my perspective on this kind of formed, which is you'll actually end up seeing kind of a host of schools come up in the same way that you have a host of colleges today, right? And over a period of time, mm-hmm. you, you'll kind of see an alternative system that develops. We've never had it where, you know, Harvard is kind of a winner take all, you know, one. Totally. Right? And so how do you kind of conceptually think about that as you build the business? Yeah, and I think that's right. I think you know, they're going to be an ecosystem of institutions um, like ourselves that are looking to address this problem. And I think the way in which we stand out um, certainly will be on brand, but it isn't on on brand alone. And I think it comes down to developing um, your own competency and ability to integrate, um, you know, technology and also just uh, pedagogy into what you're doing in a way that scales and in a way that's defensible. You know, I alluded to earlier in the conversation about the system level sort of you know, cracks in terms of hiring and recruiting and, and education. And one of the things I think a lot about is how the hiring motion of actually sort of reaching people where they are is not too dissimilar from the sales motion. And, you know, the hiring motion hasn't really changed um, that much in terms of how we're reaching people where they are. And the sales motion certainly has, like the modern sales stack has evolved. And so if you think about just some of the things I spoke to in terms of skills assessment, skills matching, and also just deeply partnering with companies, not just on a um, you know, single hire basis, but also philosophically, how do we integrate your product and industry into our curriculum and into our, um, you know, our program? That's when I think the light bulb goes off for um, folks on the investing side and the end tech world uh, who really get what we're doing and the opportunity to really build something bigger than, um, you know, just a, a, another coding bootcamp. And that's where I get excited about Flockchain in particular uh, because of that unique um, skill set, competency and ability we have to build something bigger. You know, Sean, as we, as we round out the conversation, I, 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 I'm going to ask you the, you know, the Peter Thiel question as, as applied to education, because I'm in to get your perspective on it, which is, you know, sure. what's one truth about education 
you believe that very few people agree with you on? So I think, and this might be quite controversial, uh, and we found you can build community, presence, uh, culture, quirkiness, even weirdness online in Slack. Um, I think the, the, the thing we talked about earlier in terms of in-class versus online experience, a lot of the assumptions around the difference is just that physical interactiveness that you can't replace in the classroom. And I mean, we've already seen it. Um, tools like Slack are incredible. We have this vibrant community of people all across the country who are helping each other, who are interacting, who are getting to know each other, who are sharing personal stories, uh, you know, both related and unrelated to class uh, in a way where there's real connection. And that to me, um, you know, reminds me of sort of the, the stories we read about the early days of the internet in terms of the ability of people to connect uh, in chat rooms and online. And you're seeing that sort of, um, that sort of X factor present now in a way I, I haven't seen or felt in a long time. So I, I don't know how many people believe that or not, but seeing that community build on, on tools like Slack, specifically as it pertains to education, is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, and we'll, we'll have to keep track of it. Well, Sean, this has been a super interesting conversation. You know, I, I learned a lot, and, and I'm really glad you were able to make the time. So you know, thanks, thanks again for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.